When is God most delighted in us? When is God most delighted in us? A few weeks ago, we began a new series entitled From Ashes to Glory. And it's a series that is intended to remind us of who we are without King Jesus. We are often reminded of who we are in Christ, but we rarely recall the person that we were before the presence of his spirit entered our lives. So Christian, let's put this into practice. If you would take a moment and just close your eyes. Now remember who you were without Christ. Begin to speak out loud the things that you wanted stripped away, the things that you no longer wanted to take hold of your life. Remember the weight of the feeling that you had before you asked God to take it all away. You can open your eyes. When is God most delighted in us? Well, our text for today is Psalm 51. And in reading the psalmist's prayer, we will find our answer to the question presented, an answer that I believe is rooted in each of the schemes that we exposed to the air this morning. So if you have your physical or your digital Bible, please open them to Psalm 51. And as you're making your way there, I'd like to provide some context. You see, Psalm 51 is one of those rare psalms where we have the exact context in which it is written. Our psalm opens with these words for the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Are you familiar with the story? Uh, If not, allow me to read it to you. This is what the Lord sent Nathan to tell David in 2 Samuel 12. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. Well, one day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. When David heard this, he was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one that he had stole and for having no pity. But then Nathan said to David, You are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. 
And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then? Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. If this exercise, if the exercise that we did at the beginning of this taught us anything at all, it's that we can resonate with the weight of what David is feeling at this moment. After being rebuked so harshly, praying seems to best to be the best course of action. So when is God most delighted in us? Well, let's start reading Psalm 51 to find a clearer answer. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, be gracious to me, O God, because of your unfailing, your faithful, your steadfast love. Because of your great compassion, your abundant mercy, blot out my rebellion, my transgressions, the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me. Cleanse me from my sin. For I recognize that my rebellion, my transgressions, the stains of my sin, it haunts me day and night. It is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, in your verdict. And your judgment, your judgment against me is blameless. We begin to witness the disparity of David in these verses. The imbalance of David's heart finds him pleading for mercy asking God to blot out the stain of his sins as if they had never happened, to completely remove them from the record. David is asking for someone to mend his brokenness, to atone for his immorality. He could no longer bear the weight of his transgressions because they are always before him. Bathsheba, his many wives and children, those that he asked to carry out his dirty deeds, members of Uriah's family. David began to see that sin is never individual. It is always communal. And, all, and although each act was done in private, it created long-term public implications. In his psalm devotional, Tim Keller, he goes as far as to say that sin is like treason. Keller explains it like this. If you try to overthrow your own country, you may harm or kill individuals in the process. But you will be tried for treason because you have betrayed the entire country that nurtured you. So every sin is cosmic treason. 
It is overthrowing the rule of the one to whom you owe everything. Let that sink in. Our actions do not only impact us, they impact everyone around us, even the one that we owe everything to. I once heard it said this way, every time we sin, we place Jesus back on the cross. But what is most impactful about this statement is that King Jesus loves us so much that he is willing to endure the cross over and over and over again in order to make us one with the Father. So ask yourself, Christian, are you okay with continually crucifying our King? Because if we're being honest, the public display of Christianity in our world today seems to be okay with it. We should all heed these words from 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say that we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Live in the light and confess your sins to God and no power of hell, no scheme of man will ever pluck you from his hand. When is God most delighted in us? Let's keep reading. Verse 5. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty, faithfulness from the womb. You delight in truth and the inward being. Teaching me wisdom deep within that secret place. Purge, cleanse, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Will give me back my joy again. You have broken me. You, let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Hide your face. Turn away from them. Blot out the stain, my guilt. In verses 5 and 6, David is acknowledging that his depravity reaches as far back as his entrance into this world. Matt Stafford, professor of the Psalms at Ozark Christian College, he clarifies what David is processing here in his devotional commentary on Psalm 51. This is what Matt says. This is not about original sin, nor is it suggesting that there is something sinful about the sexual act in marriage. This is hyperbole. Hyperbole that is consistent with the general understanding in the Bible and in ancient religions that mankind is inclined toward evil. Left to ourselves, left to our own devices, we will 
we will more often choose selfishness over love for our neighbor. In this moment where David's sin has been exposed for the world to see and is acutely aware of his moral deficiencies, which have gone back to his earliest memories. Stafford continues. Even at our best, sin is always present, pulling us towards selfishness and pride. And yet, there is a, a, a moral compass within us that desires to pull us to true north with the power like that of the Earth's magnetic field. Wherever we are, whatever we are doing, it tells us what is right and wrong, and it urges us to align our lives with truth. Though our natural inclination is to go against the image in which we were created, it does not mean. It does not mean that we are inherently evil. No, on the contrary, in Genesis 131, we are reminded that God looked on all that he had created, declaring it very good. Perhaps this is the reason that David looks so far back, to try and capture some semblance of goodness that he could align with. But to look this far back certainly shows the depth of his despair. And we begin to believe that David wants nothing more than to be washed whiter than snow. Maybe you can relate to this level of guilt. Maybe something was said that negatively impacted a relationship. And where there was once joy and gladness, there is now pain and disdain. Maybe a moral failure completely wrecked your world. And it feels like there is no way out of the pit of misery. Maybe you are so invested in your addiction that you have become numb to your core, unreceptive to any ounce of hope. You want nothing more than for God to turn away from your sins and blot out the stain of your guilt. Well, allow the Apostle Paul to comfort you with his words in 1 Timothy 1. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me, so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Now herein lies the beauty of the cross. The atoning sacrifice of King Jesus not only freed us from our transgressions, but now provides the opportunity to use our story to tell others, to use our story to help others realize that they too can be renewed. And as we unfold more of David's prayer, we begin to see this shift in his own understanding. That in order to be the man, in order to be the leader that God wanted him to be, David needed to do some heart surgery. So that his story could be used for God's greater purpose. Let's continue in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast, a loyal, a right spirit within me. Do not banish, do not cast me 
from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey. Then, then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. That word renew, it shows us that David does recall a time in his life where he was zealous for the Lord. As a young man, David was steadfast and loyal at heart. But as that young man turned into a powerful king, he began to work in opposition to God. Believing everything that he had accomplished was done of his own volition. Does this sound familiar? I mean, I can recall many times throughout my life where I thought that I had it all figured out. Where my three best friends were me, myself, and I. But as I started to bring others into what I was trying to accomplish, I began to see the positive impact that this provided. I became less stressed as weight had been lifted from my shoulders. And I started seeing ideas come to life in new ways. I had accountability. I had friendship. God wants us. He wants us to ask him to come alongside us in what we are trying to accomplish. He wants to relieve the stress that we have caused ourselves. He wants to keep us focused and moving in the right direction. And he wants to be our friend. But if we push God away, He will respect that decision. This is how God is using David's story to show us that even at our worst, there is still hope for redemption, which culminates in the cross of Christ. Church, this is also how God uses our stories. Our stories have resurrection power. Share them often. What beauty there is in knowing that our greatest failures can act as healing for the brokenhearted. Okay, you're right. I've been dancing around this question the whole time. When is God most delighted in us? Well, we've expressed many ways in which God delights in us. Prayer. Prayer is certainly part of the equation. Repentance confession, being light in a dark and twisted world, aligning our lives with his truth, sharing our stories for the sake of others coming to know him. All of these practices are are how we show reverence to God, but I believe that the answer we are looking for is found in these final verses of Psalm 51. Let's start in verse 14. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Open, unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice that you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then 
Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will again be sacrificed on your altar. David has been finding it difficult to worship because of his wrongdoings. So he asks God to unseal his lips so that we that, that he may praise the Lord again. And sometimes we we enter the church building for worship on a Sunday morning and we put up a front that everything is great in our world. When in reality, we are screaming for help on the inside. We find it hard to truly worship our creator because we have defiled his creation. Lucky for us, God works best when we come to him in our brokenness. We are the clay and he is the potter, mending each broken vessel and turning us into a new work of art. When is God most delighted in us? Well, God is most delighted in us when we come to him in our brokenness. It is the sacrifice that he desires. This is why David can still be considered a man after God's own heart, after all the treacherous things that he has done. God will never reject a broken and repentant heart, but instead use the brokenness for his glory. Internalizing our brokenness only allows it to fester, poisoning everything and everyone around us. But we must expose our brokenness, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of others, trusting that only God is able to wash us whiter than snow. This cleansing does not just stop with us, though. David's final prayer is, is an extension to his community. He asks for the Lord to look with favor on Zion and help her. Now, if we are truly grateful for the gift that we have been given, the free gift of grace that flows from the broken sacrifice of King Jesus. We would want nothing more than for others to experience this as well. So let's end this morning in a time of prayer for the community of Joplin, for our nation, and for the world. Heavenly Father, we are nothing but broken people in a broken world. And we know that you are the one that can mend us and make us whole, Lord. Help us to believe that. Help us to believe that the, that we can trust you. God, there are many things that are happening locally, nationally, and in this world, Lord, that are antithetical to your ways. Lord, we ask that you bring us all back to you, to renewing of our hearts. Lord, we ask that you make us whole again, that you make us clean. Help us to see our depravity. Help us to see how broken we are. Because it's in that brokenness where you come in and you make us whole again, Lord. You mend those broken pieces. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for showing us this as an example on the cross with Jesus allowing his body to be broken for us, but you used that broken body. You used that broken body to bring us all to a realization that we need to come to you, Lord. We love you.
Amen. Amen.